For our scripture reading today, we are continuing in our study of First Timothy. We're reading this letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to a young pastor. And uh, today we'll be looking at three verses in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse, verses 18, 19, and 20. And let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'll read verse 18, we will read verse 19, and I will read verse 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we open the word, may you speak to us. May you show us ourselves in the mirror of your word. And may we see Christ in the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About 20 years ago, I went through a bad time in my life. Uh, I was pastoring a church, and we had seen the Lord do some wonderful things in evangelism, discipleship, small group ministry, leadership training. Uh, There were some very exciting things happening in the church. But then opposition began building against what we were doing, finding fault with it, criticizing people and methods. And then there was an attempt to remove my assistant pastor who was in charge of this area of the church. And when I stood by him, there were efforts to remove me. It was a bad time. It was a bad time. I had always known the scripture that says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. I knew it theologically. I knew it biblically. But I didn't know it in my heart of hearts. I was tempted to think that people were against me that those who criticized and gossiped and opposed were my enemies. I went through a very bad time. The church board was kind enough to pay for 10 sessions of biblical counseling for me, and I really benefited from it. A mature pastor uh, spent 10 weeks with me letting me talk, listening, and sharing insight. And the one big insight I came away from those 10 weeks of counseling was this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It was a hard thing for me to learn. That I was engaged in spiritual warfare, and that those who opposed me and opposed what I felt was God's work and God's ways uh, were not my enemies that essentially I had one enemy and that that was the devil. And that I needed to put on the full armor of God 
and I needed to pray with all prayer, and I needed to be the man that God called me to be in the midst of that. It was a hard lesson to learn. I hope I've learned it. I hope I have learned that the real battle in the Christian life is not with our relatives or other church members or other Christians who think differently than we do, but that we are actually engaged in spiritual warfare. That we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, with the devil and demons in the spiritual warfare. Our real enemies are not people. It is the devil. The other thing I learned is that spiritual warfare is real. And that Satan and his demons are more powerful than me. But I have a big brother who is not ashamed to call me his brother. Jesus Christ. And he is greater than the devil and all his demons put together. Jesus is more powerful. And so I trust him. I call upon him. I seek him. I say, Lord, you got to help me. you got to help me in this situation. You want me to do this? Whether it's parenting or pastoring. <laughs> My great challenges in life. Lord, you got to help me. I can't do this. I can't do this. And just as in salvation, I came to the place many years ago where I said, I can't do this. I can't save myself. Lord, you're going to have to save me. I can't do this. I've learned to rely upon the Lord more and more and not to see my critics and the posers as my enemy, but as those who were also engaged in the same spiritual warfare that I am. Now, I believe that the pastoral epistles are informative to us today, especially for this church at this time in the life of this church, because I believe that God is using his word by his spirit to prepare this congregation for the choosing and the adjustment to your new senior pastor. And the thing I want to tell you from the text we just read today is that your next senior pastor needs to be dangerous. He needs to be dangerous. You better pick a dangerous pastor. Dangerous to the devil and dangerous to the demons. I hope the devil's upset with who you choose. I've enjoyed listening to Mad Dog Mattis lately. General Mattis. Also known by the names Warrior, Monk, and Chaos. A four-star general who now serves as our Secretary of Defense. An interviewer asked him, what keeps him awake at night? And his answer was great. He said, I sleep well. My job is to keep other people awake at night. <laughs> Dangerous. 
In these verses, the Apostle Paul compares pastoral ministry to naval warfare. Any Navy vets here today? No Navy veterans here? None? Oh, one. Okay, Steve. All right, great. This is for you, Steve. All right. Because, you know, it's unfair to the Navy. I mean, the kids in Sunday school, what do they sing? I'm in the Lord's army. Remember that? I may never march in the infantry. But you know what? According to this text, we as believers are in the Lord's navy. Okay? Now, you remember, this letter was written to people who lived around a particular body of water, the Mediterranean Sea. And the world as they knew it was all taking place around the Mediterranean Sea. Many sea battles took place there for control of the Mediterranean. The Greeks, the Persians, and the Romans, they all had navies. They had their biremes and their triremes. That is, those vessels that were rowed by slaves with their two and three levels of slaves on oars. You've probably seen it in movies. They carried archers. They used fire. They used underwater rams. They rammed and boarded and set enemy ships on fire. And many terrible sea battles ensued where slaves were drowned in their chains to their oars. The sea battles. And Paul knew about shipwrecks too, didn't he? He mentions that on three occasions he was involved in shipwrecks. I noticed our VBS theme this year is shipwreck. I hope it's going to be all right. I I don't know. (laughs) Shipwreck. Today's text describes two very different ships. And I believe that these describe two types of Christians in churches today. Verses 18 and 19a describe destroyers. And then verse 20 talks of derelicts. And then we even work into a dry dock. And if you want to know how the program's going with this sermon on the back of your bulletin, you'll find an outline by which perhaps you can predict when we near the end. Okay? That's what outlines are helpful for. How to be a destroyer, verses 18 and 19. Notice the military terms. This command, I entrust to you, an entrusted command. Timothy had orders from the Apostle Paul, the admiral, if you will. And the orders were to fight the good fight. We live in a world where policemen don't fight. Some of them. Some of them. Apparently one of them didn't fight when someone started shooting students in the high school in Florida. Apparently he hid outside. But the training program for police in a school shooting is the first armed officers go inside. He hid outside. There are many brave police officers. God bless them. 
But I'll tell you what, if you're going to be a police officer, you better be ready to fight, not just to write reports and look strong. We look at our police officers and we see that gun, but they do not bear it in vain, according to Romans 13. He intends for them to use it when it is proper to use it. Same with the military. We have one of the greatest military forces ever assembled in the world. The lethality of our armaments, nuclear and non-nuclear, are amazing. But if there is no will to fight, if there is no will to win, then we have the situations in which America has found itself, where we limit ourselves by rules of engagement that do not allow our soldiers to fight or win. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight. There is no place for cowardice here. This is not a situation, Timothy, where you're only going to preach the things that people want to hear. I could preach a sermon on the temptations of pastors. You know one of the great temptations of pastors is to preach the things that people like to hear. To preach the things that people want to hear. But you know, sometimes when a pastor is studying the scriptures, he comes up with some stuff. He says, you know, it really does say that, doesn't it? But they're not going to want to hear that. Maybe I'll preach something else. I'll find something that they'll like. Pastors are not hirelings. Pastors are under shepherds of the true shepherd, and we answer to the true shepherd. Someday, every pastor will give an account to him who called us into the ministry. And the account will not, did you make people happy? It was, did you preach the word in season and out of season? Did you reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine? Because the time did come when people heaped to themselves teachers who have itchy ears and they turn away their ears from the truth. The temptation of pastors is to not fight the good fight, but to hide and to find passages of Scripture which tickle people's ears rather than stabbing their hearts, which is what the Word was intended to do. The Word was intended to defeat Satan and evil and wrong thinking and wrong doctrine. And that's why Paul left Timothy there in Ephesus. He says, I left you there to deal with the false doctrines of people in your church. Paul had predicted it. Men would arise up among them and speak perverse things and turn away people's ears from the truth. He says, if you're not willing to fight, then get out of the ministry because you're going to have to do what God wants you to do. And that sometimes for a pastor means that he gets fired. I love observing churches as I drive around the South. You've got a lot of churches down here in the South. And I I see some of them have a church sign where the pastor's name is swinging on a couple of little hooks. (laughs) 
And there's been a lot of paint jobs on that little sign swinging on the hooks. And I wonder what happened to those men that God called and that church that so, was so excited about their new pastor. And then he said something that cut them the wrong way, and they said, well, he's not a good fit. Uh, he's not making me comfortable. See, I believe that the task of the pastor is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And you want a pastor that will do both for you. Just like you want a doctor that tells you the truth. Amen? Give it to me straight, doc, we say. I can handle it. Say that to your pastor sometime. <laughs> say, pastor... Would you preach the whole counsel of God? I can take it. I can take it. Fight the good fight. A friend of mine named Charlie once said to me, he said, <clears throat> he said, I know why you're having trouble down at that church. I was past. He said, it's because you're doing too much in evangelism. He said, when we were sending little Bibles to Russia, he said, I had all kinds of problems in my life, my family, my business. When we stopped doing that, everything calmed down. He said, that's why. I'll tell you what, a church ought to be dangerous. A church ought to be dangerous to the devil. The, da the church ought to be dangerous to liberal, false teaching churches in its community because it's going to steal people with the truth. Now, people shouldn't just swap around from one church to the other because they, you know, they, they like the youth group or they like the pastor or they like the music. Or, you know, those kind of things. Just swapping Christians around, that's really not what church growth is about. But if a church denies the inspiration of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, salvation by grace through faith, it's time to get out and go to a church that believes the Bible. And a church that upholds the Bible and stands for the truth will be blessed of God. But they will be in battles and the devil will be after you. If you think the devil in Fuquay, Varina is mainly down at the beer joints down there, you're wrong. He's in the churches. He's working in the churches to bring about false doctrine, a false gospel, and a false faith. So, he says, you're going to have to fight the good fight. You're going to have to do what James 4, 7 says, submit to God and resist the devil. And what a wonderful promise. He will flee from you. I have seen the devil oppose me at every turn of the road, whether in parenting or pastoring. It's been a battle and I'm still in it. But God is greater. And I have seen God do miraculous things. In fact, the only reason I'm still in the ministry is because God does miracles. He has spared my pastoral and, uh, and parenting life more than once. He has answered so many prayers for me. He has been so gracious. He has been so good. God is alive and He's at work in people's lives. He answers prayer. But you've got to be willing to do your job. And you need a pastor that is dangerous. He fights the good fight. He has the right weapons, the right commander, the right enemies, and the right strategy. And Paul says to Timothy, 
I'm entrusting this command to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. What were the prophecies? Well, in chapter 4, verse 14 of this same book, Paul says, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Apparently, when Timothy was ordained to the gospel ministry by the eldership of the church, there was a prophecy made upon him. This is in the time before the Scriptures is completed. The gift of prophecy is functioning and God is speaking through the prophets. And apparently the prophetic word was that Timothy was called to be a pastor teacher. And he says, stir up the gift. Don't neglect it. Do you realize that all God's children are gifted? Maybe you didn't get into the gifted and talented program. I didn't. I was in the try-to-get-through-school program. (laughs) You know? But there are always those gifted and talented ones, and I always thought, wow, that's so special. And they wear special tassels when they graduate and all that kind of stuff. I was never one of those kids. But you know what? Every one of God's children are gifted. You, if you're a believer you were given a spiritual gift, at least one, when you got saved, and you ought to develop that gift. You say, well, Pastor, I don't know what my gift is. Well, the next time anybody in this church says we need some people to do something, do it. You'll find out what you're good at and what you're not good at, which is just as true. There's basically two kinds of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. You're going to find out whether you are primarily a speaker or a server, whether you're out front or behind the scenes, and you're going to find where you find joy and effectiveness and where others recognize your gifts. And then when you are functioning in your area of giftedness, you will have joy and you will have fruitfulness. Amen? Amen. I see that in this church. So many of you love serving the Lord. So many of you love serving the Lord. And you are serving in your area of giftedness. And some of you are in the kitchen, and some of you are teaching, and you're involved in so many different ministries. And as you use your spiritual gifts in ministry, you will be used of God for the upbuilding of the church and for the winning of gospel victories for the honor of the Lord. Now, Timothy was commanded to fight on two fronts. It's always difficult to fight a two-front war. He was to deal with false doctrine of the legalists who were misusing the law, according to verses 6 to 11, and also to deal with the issue of sin in regard to the conscience. And he says you've got to keep right doctrine and you've got to keep a good conscience. You need to believe your beliefs And you need to keep short accounts with God. Holding on to faith. The faith and faith in the faith. Basically, believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. Amen? What do you do when you come across something in the Bible? You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. It's kind of hard to believe. It's unbelievable. What do you do? Well, how about if when you have a question, you find the answer? Amen? You have a question, 
find the answer. That's why you have pastors and teachers in the church. That's why you have good Bible teaching materials online and in the bookstore and wherever it is. And so when you have a question, seek the answer in the Word of God and from godly gifted teachers and find the answer. Doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. Because doubt will destroy your spiritual effectiveness. James 1.6 says it this way, in regard to prayer, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He says you better believe your beliefs. Take God's Word, trust it, act upon it, and God will grow your faith muscles. How does our faith grow? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Praise the Lord for Christian radio like BBN broadcast. Praise the Lord for Christian apps where you can read through the Bible in a year. Praise the Lord for the opportunities that we have today through television, the internet, radio, so many apps and so forth to strengthen our faith. Get the Word of God into your life. It's amazing how His Word will build your faith. Spend time in His Word. And then he says, hold on to a good conscience. What is a conscience? It seems to relate to the fruit of that tree that Eve took and ate and gave to her husband. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems like that's what the conscience is. It is the knowledge of good and evil. One little girl, when she was asked what conscience is, she says, it's that little part of me that tells me what my brother is doing wrong. It is funny how our conscience does seem to work more effectively in regard to others. Uh, It was intended to actually work in regard to ourselves. In fact, he says in regard to the deacons here in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, holding the faith, that is the Christian set of doctrines, in a good or pure conscience. And it is in that good conscience that we hold the faith. The conscience is the receptacle of faith. John Calvin said it this way, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. How does a person who once believed the truth become an unbeliever, a heretic? How do people apostatize? How do they go astray? How is it that Christian leaders often well-versed in biblical knowledge, go away from the truth. The Bible says it is a matter of the conscience. The conscience was intended to be a filter that would catch evil. And the idea of a conscience is that it shows us where we have done wrong so that we can clear our conscience 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as regards my fellowship with God, my conscience shows me I'm wrong. I confess that. I admit that to God. Yes, God, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. And then I accept His 
forgiveness and cleansing by His blood for my life. And I walk in clear conscience. And if I sin against someone else, then I go to them and I tell them I was wrong and ask for their forgiveness. That's what Paul said before Agrippa. He said, here and I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense before God and man. If you're ever going to hang on to true doctrine, you will not do it merely by your intellect. You will do it by means of your conscience being good and pure and operating correctly. The Bible speaks of a seared conscience. That lies and hypocrisy can sear your conscience. Becoming a hypocrite where you're allowing things in your mind and heart that you wouldn't want anybody else to know. That's hypocrisy. That is living a good life on the outside, but having a corrupt life on the inside. Lies and hypocrisy cause our conscience to be seared, to lose the sensitivity to sin. A weak conscience is one that is not properly informed by the Word of God. Uh, Jiminy Cricket wasn't entirely right about the whole thing. Let your conscience be your guide, you know. Uh, It's a conscience trained by the Word of God that should be our guide. Consciences can be wrongly trained. They can be wrongly trained by parents, by false religion, by false culture. Our conscience is meant to be informed by the Word of God and then to be that little voice that says, you should not have done that. No, that wasn't right. No, that won't be right. You shouldn't do that. It's that voice inside us, trained by the Word of God, that enables us to walk by the Spirit of God. Now, I want to give you a little experiment to test your conscience. Are you ready for a little test? This is an unannounced quiz for your conscience. Okay, you ready? I would suggest you just take the Ten Commandments, for instance. And let me poke your conscience a little bit, okay? I want to poke it. You go to the doctor and he like, you know, sees if you have any, you know, responses. I want to, I want to tap your conscience a little bit and see if you can react, okay? See if I, this gets any reaction out of you. Is there anything in your life more important than God? Any response? Do you honor your father and your mother? Have you ever used God's name or the name of Jesus Christ in a careless way? Is there anyone that you hate? Have you ever had lustful thoughts, adultery of the heart? Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Even on your taxes. Hmm. How'd that go? Do you lie? Do you covet? If I have stirred even a little bit of guilt in you, that's a good sign. Because what that means is that your conscience is not entirely dead. It is not entirely seared. It still has some sensitivity to it. How many of you are thankful for pain? Yes. Do you know how good pain is for us? Do you realize how dangerous this world would be to you if you felt no pain ever? Pain is a guardian of our body. 
And so is the conscience, a guardian of our soul. And just as we feel pain in our body when we hit it with a hammer or or touch a hot stove, so the conscience was intended by God to be a guardian, a filter, a care for our soul. So the strategy for victorious warfare for Timothy was to hold Bible doctrine in a good conscience and to use his spiritual gift for God's glory. How are you doing with that? Is your conscience operative? Is it working? Are you holding true biblical doctrine in a functional, healthy conscience? And are you using your spiritual gift for God's glory. That is the warfare that we are to fight. He warns about the danger of becoming a derelict. I took a walk a couple weeks ago down in Florida near my mother-in-law's house. I took a break from the relatives and uh, took a walk for my health. And I was walking along the Indian River in a beautiful park there. And and, and I saw these, these old boats just sitting kind of cockeyed in the water in the Indian River. Uh, so one day that was somebody's dream boat, you know? I can just see the day that he bought that boat. You know what I mean? It's like, whoa, got myself a boat. But now it's all cockeyed in the water. Some storm wrecked it. It's shipwrecked. It's just laying there, a rotting hulk, a derelict. He speaks of them here in 19b, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. Paul knew about shipwrecks. He had been in them. And he had seen some who had a shipwreck. How can you have a spiritual shipwreck in the naval warfare of the spiritual life? He says, by throwing the faith overboard. When you throw the faith overboard, you're going to have a shipwreck. When Jonah was on the ship, they threw the tackle overboard because they were about to be shipwrecked. And there are people who have abandoned the faith. Charles Templeton was an associate of R.A. Torrey and of Billy Graham in the founding of Youth for Christ. He traveled with Billy Graham and preached alongside Billy Graham throughout the United States and Canada and in Europe. Was greatly used of God in the preaching of the Gospel. Some people thought he was as good as Billy Graham in those early days. He had no formal theological training and so... He went to Princeton Seminary where he was exposed to liberal ideas from Germany, questioning the inspiration of Scripture and many other biblical doctrines. He gave in to it. He became a skeptic. He ended up as an atheist and spoke against the Christian faith. Charles Templeton Check it out. Google it on Wikipedia. You'll find the whole story there. Became a TV commentator in Canada where he was from. How does that happen to somebody who was a preacher, who was a gospel preacher, greatly used of God? How does he become a skeptic and then an atheist and then an opponent of the faith? He says, when you throw the faith overboard, you are, hitting, you are heading for a shipwreck. <laughs> 
People do this by eliminating distasteful and difficult doctrines. Hey, how about hell? Is that a difficult doctrine? Do you know how many Christian pastors never talk about hell anymore? They don't. Why? Because people don't believe in it. Boy, it's funny how everybody in America seems to believe in heaven, though. Have you noticed that? Heaven's pretty popular. Even with people that aren't saved, they still believe in heaven. But Jesus had, most of what we know about hell is from the very lips of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. And yet people turn away from things. They don't want to preach about the blood of Christ. That sounds creepy to them, you know. They don't want to talk about the new birth, the necessity of being born again. They don't want to talk about God's promises to Israel. They don't want to talk about a six-day creation or a any-time rapture. These are sensitive subjects, and people have different opinions about them, so wise pastors just kind of stay on the positive things. Positive, just positive stuff. Happy things. Hopeful things encouraging things. But what does the Bible say? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I love it when pastors preach through a book of the Bible. Do you know why? Because then they have to preach it like it is. It is. I think that's why everybody liked Dr. McGee so much. I mean, why do so many people... They're translating his messages, the Bible bus, into over 100 languages. Right, Joe? You're in on that. Why Dr. McGee? I mean, he's kind of folksy, and he just... You look at his commentaries, and and after he explains the verse, it's like, yeah, that's what it says. (laughs) You know? It's just like, yeah, that's what it says. But I believe that's why God has used his, his ministry so mightily, is that he just plain out went through the Bible and said, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is what you ought to do. Plain teaching. Not just preaching the happy, inspirational stuff. What happens when people are shipwrecked? Well, then they overthrow the faith of others. They have a dangerous ministry of corrupting of the church. They have failed to use the map. That's the Bible. They've failed to use the compass. That's our conscience. And they failed to listen to the captain. That is Jesus Christ. And they overthrow the faith of some. But there's hope even for derelicts. Because God has a dry dock. And that's what we find at the end of verse 20. He names names. He names these two guys. Boy, you know, wouldn't it be great to have your name in the Bible? <laughs> Except maybe here, okay? Poor Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, I've, del- I've handed them over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander. It says regarding Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy 2.17, their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are the sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. They were wrong in their eschatology, and he says wrong eschatology is like cancer. Hey, there's hardly anything worse than cancer. It's horrible how it spreads. False doctrine is a cancer in the church. 
it will spread unless it is stopped by courageous leaders who say, that's not true. The Bible says this. Alexander. He's spoken of in 2 Timothy 4.14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. I don't know what Alexander was up to, but he did Paul much harm. He says, is it ever right for preachers and teachers to name false teachers? Yes, as long as due process has been followed. What is that due process which must be followed? It is the command that Jesus gave while on earth regarding the church. He only used the word ecclesia twice. I will build my church and tell it to the church. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear you with one or two more, go with one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Take witnesses with you. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. God has given disciplinary authority to the church. He has given disciplined authority to the family. Amen? Can I hear an amen on that? And he's given disciplinary authority to the government. These are the three institutions established by God with disciplinary authority. A number of years ago, a situation came to my attention as a pastor in our church. Two members of our church, two single men, were discovered to be actively engaged in a homosexual relationship. What does a pastor do? What does a pastor do? Push it under the rug? Act like it's not happening? What did I have to do? I didn't want to do it. I had to go to these men. One of them repented and was willing to be restored and was restored. The other one said, I'm out of here and took off and was placed under discipline. I've had to deal with false doctrine. I had small group leaders who went online and studied the fact that there is no eternal punishment. It's what they discovered online. They didn't discover it in the Bible, but they heard some people online that said, no, there's no eternal punishment. When you're dead, you're dead. And that's what the Bible teaches. And so he began teaching and believing that. I dealt with him over a period of time. I dealt with him with witnesses and then took it before the church. He had to be placed under church discipline, no longer regarded as a believer by our church. It was a sad thing. I love that guy. I still pray for his restoration. What is church discipline? Church discipline is using the authority of the Bible to wage the good warfare, to hold the doctrine. You see, a church without discipline is like a body with AIDS. It has no immune system. That's why many churches are fine until they are attacked by Satan. And when they reach out with the gospel, they will be attacked by Satan, either with immorality or wrong doctrine. And the church that refuses to deal with it, just looks the other way, gossips about it, but doesn't deal with it biblically, is going to be overcome and become another casualty church. 
and what Satan is doing around the world. I'll tell you what, your pastor needs to be dangerous. Your pastor needs to be one who knows how to fight the good fight on his knees in prayer. He needs to be one who himself obeys the Word and teaches the Word as it is in the Bible. He tells you what it says. And he holds you accountable in your conscience to do what God has led you to do. That is the battle in which we are engaged. It's very interesting here. He says, I have handed them over to Satan, no longer under the umbrella and care of the local church, so that they may be taught. And that word taught is paiduo. It is, means to discipline. They need to be disciplined, not to blaspheme. Hand it over to Satan. What does that mean? Look back over the page in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. A church without discipline is like a garden without being weeded. It is like our culture today whereby we try to encourage an ideal of goodness without fighting the good fight against evil, first in our own hearts, and then in our areas of responsibility in the government, in the church, and in our homes. Let's bow in prayer. So where are you in the Lord's Navy? Are you a destroyer? Dangerous to the devil and his ways in this world? Or are you a derelict? Have you started throwing doctrines off your ship? You've started saying, well, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not sure I believe that. And you're throwing the faith over. Where do you stand? Are you a destroyer or a derelict? Maybe you need to come into God's dry dock and let him rebuild your life into a powerful gospel life where you will reach out with the true gospel no matter what and you will stand upon everything that the Bible says in all of its completeness, the whole counsel of God? Are you keeping your conscience cleared? Are you keeping a good account with God? Is there anything you feel guilty about that you have not confessed and accepted God's forgiveness for as you hold the doctrines of the faith in a good conscience? Perhaps you're not saved. You've never admitted you can't save yourself. And Never come to Jesus to be cleansed of the guilt of your sin. You can come to Him today. Admit you cannot save yourself and believe in Christ who died for you and rose again and He will save you now. Father, I pray for each one here today that we might respond in faith and obedience to Your inspired Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray with me, please. Our God and our Father, we thank you for yet another time that we can gather here 
We thank you, Father, for this body of believers. We pray, Father, that you might be with us as we go into uh, our various homes, houses, workplaces. Pray, Father, that we might be a witness and testimony for Jesus Christ, that others might be able to see Christ living in us. We just pray, Father, now that you'll guide and direct here with our country. We thank you, Father, for the freedoms that we have here. We pray, though, Father, that you might be with our <clears throat> president, those in Congress, those that enact laws. We pray, Father, that you might be with them, and they might not lean unto their own understanding, but they might in all ways acknowledge you. And now, <clears throat> the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.